to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So, let's live our best lives, one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. Hi, everybody. We're so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing great. I'm so glad. Me too. The weather's kind of crummy here. We had awful storms last night. Awful. But... Lulu, I spent a great day outside yesterday, so she's kind of my fear, fear reactive dog. She's afraid of everything. (laughs) So I took her out. I'm trying to get her used to people. So I took her to the FedEx store and she met the FedEx lady and I took her to the pet store and she did great there. And I took her to the park and she got to meet some people at the park. The strange enough, at the park, there's a pizza place and one of the guys from the pizza place came out and he said... Can I pet your dog? And I said, that is 100% up to my dog and whether or not she wants you to pet her. Because that's funny. some people she'll go right up to and other people she's like, nope. Nope. That's so funny. And he said, I'm not afraid of her. And I said, yeah, but she might be afraid of you. And he said, but does she like cheese? And he opened up his hand and he had a whole handful of cheese. And I said, she loves cheese and you might just be her new best friend. And so he coaxed her over and she got to meet him. And did she eat some cheese? Yes. And I said, I like, should you new best friend to dogs? I don't even know. It's okay. You can give cheese to dogs. I don't know. I don't don't have dogs. (laughs) It's it's okay. I don't think a cat would eat cheese. They would just look at you. Like, what are you doing? Oh, no. She got lots of treats yesterday. She was a good girl, and good. I enjoy working with her. I'm glad. And I know it, that it feels good to have her gaining more confidence out in the world. Yes. I felt like a proud mama when I got home with her last night. Well, good. Well, we just have been through Thanksgiving. We had our first little tiny, tiny Thanksgiving. It was just me and Chad and Will. But it was good. It was no pressure. That was what was great. Yes. And it was like so easy just to cook for three people. It was like regular dinner. You know, I made all the sides we wanted to have, and it was really good and simple. I simplified it. I didn't make my grandmama's three-day dressing that you have to take three <laughs> days to make. I just bought, like, a bag of cleanish-looking dressing, like, stuffing mix that had pretty clean ingredients and mixed it up with some celery and some onion, and it was really good. Told you that frozen, I got frozen cornbread dressing for my husband. Yeah. I think I said it was called Southern Comfort, uh, which I realized afterwards that's a... <laughs> Booze. That's liquor. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was called Savannah Classics or something. Okay. Anyways, and it had real clean ingredients in it too. And my husband ate it up. He said, for coming out of the freezer, this is really good. And I'm like, yay, I never have to learn how to make dressing. I bought some fresh sage. That's really the key. You want it to have that sage flavor. Uh-huh. 
Although my grandmama Calhoun, we were not allowed to put sage in all in that dressing. I don't know why, but we weren't. But I like fresh sage. So I bought some fresh sage and chopped it up. Stirred that in. Yeah, stirred that in. It was really good. And we had green beans and cranberry sauce and, you know, all the the typical stuff. Oh, we did have mashed potatoes, which I don't usually do for Thanksgiving, but we did this year. Oh, well, I forgot cranberry sauce. Oh, did you? Yes, I was in a little trouble for that. Oh, I just bought a can of cran- whole berry cranberry. It was organic cranberry sauce, and I, I stirred in some pecans. I mean, it's really easy to make cranberry sauce from scratch, but I was like, these people don't care. <laughs> so why am I going to do it? My husband wants the jelly stuff dumped out. He of the doesn't can want the whole berry no, out of the can. So no. Yeah, we at least I buy the whole berry and I stir it up so it looks like I could have uh, made it. And I added the yeah. pecans, and it was pretty good. But yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't even feel like going to the effort, even though it's not much effort. But it was a nice Thanksgiving. It was nice too. I'm glad I did it. I know I was feeling like, why do I have to cook? But it was nice. But I just made it simple. I cooked what I wanted to cook, and that was it. Now it's time for our weekly good news segment. And today we have a feel-good story shared by McKenna, and I just love this one. So she said, two friends in Ontario, Canada recently won a million-dollar lotto. Joanne and Melissa decided that rather than spend the money all on themselves, they would spend it on their community as well. Joanne's brother had recently died from alcoholism, and so she wanted to give back to services that had helped him in his life, like a charity that helps low-income pet owners access pet care, the Salvation Army, the local hospital, a hospice, and a community food bank that strives to provide nutrient-dense foods to those that are economically challenged. They also made a donation of $10,000 to a no-kill cat shelter and helped them provide supplies and spay and neuters for an entire month. They saved some of the money to fix up their own homes, and then they shared the rest with friends and relatives. And I just love this so much. I have always said I would rather see lotteries help lots of people rather than providing huge sums of money for just a few people because I really feel like $10,000 can be life-changing for a person. So I really love their giving hearts. In Georgia, the lottery was tied to education funding. Uh And it actually was why we had the Hope Scholarships. I've I've talked before about how Cal got to go to Georgia Tech for free. His tuition was paid through the Hope Scholarship, and that's directly tied to the Georgia lottery. And so it helps students go to college for if you just have to live in Georgia and have the grades and yeah. keep up the grades throughout college and the education lottery has been fabulous why you know why can't more states do something like that yeah I'm so disappointed Seth didn't take care of that or take advantage of that he qualified and he just so. didn't want to go he just wasn't in a place to go I guess I don't know I don't know if there's an expiration on that I don't know if he can go back in two years and take advantage of it or if you have to use it immediately, but it's definitely a good resource for students. We were grateful to have it just because I knew Cal would get it. And so the whole time I was like, oh, he's going to go to college for free, Hope Scholarship. And then I was like, wait a minute, though, there's still a lot of other expenses. It's not free (laughs) at all. Exactly. and board and all of that, but tuition was included. Yeah. Anyway, that made a huge difference. Well, that, that is a great story. I love to hear that. Listeners, we need your stories, and we are not kidding. We really, really do need your stories. We need your good news story, and send it to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout-out to a special someone in your life. 
tell us an amazing story, or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. Before we get to the life lesson this week, I want to take a minute to tell you about a company that helps make it possible for us to bring you the podcast. Lots of companies believe in telling you how you should eat. Hungry Root does not. Instead, they find the most nutritious options out there and they help you eat what works best for you. All Hungry Root food and all the food they carry meets a three-point standard. It has to be nutritious and made from whole trusted ingredients. Second, it has to be easy and quick to repair in real hectic life. And finally, it has to taste good. They have wonderful quality protein choices, yummy prepped veggies that are ready to cook. My favorites are their beef tips and their shaved Brussels. All the food Hungry Root offers is free of partially hydrogenated oils, free of artificial sweeteners, free of high fructose corn syrup, artificial colors, and artificial preservatives. And that is important to me. So healthy does not have to be hard. It can be easy. When you have the right food in the fridge, getting something fresh and nutritious on the table becomes unexpectedly fast and simple. Healthy does taste good. Their easy-to-make recipes make people crave Brussels sprouts, and their cookie dough comes from chickpeas. Nutrition and, whoa, that's incredible, really can exist in the same plate. Try Hungry Root today. You will not be disappointed. Click on the link in show notes and save $50. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to talk about a very important subject, and that is strokes. Strokes are the fifth leading cause of deaths. Not too long ago, they were the fourth leading cause of death. However, advanced education, diagnostics, and treatment have made strokes more survivable. When we have a stroke, symptoms come on quickly, and it's important to know what they are, because when it comes to strokes, time matters. In the hospital, we have a saying, time is brain. Every minute an ischemic stroke goes untreated, roughly 1.9 million brain cells die. Unlike other organs in the body, the brain does not regenerate. So, the faster the stroke can be identified and treated, the better. Faster treatment reduces disability following a stroke. It's also important to know that there are different types of strokes, but both require quick intervention. Hemorrhagic strokes occur when a blood vessel in the brain ruptures. It is usually a result of uncontrolled hypertension, high blood pressure. These strokes account for approximately 13% of all strokes. The other 87% are caused by ischemic strokes, meaning there is a lack of blood supply to a blocked artery in either the head or neck. It's critical to treat the stroke as quickly as possible in order to restore blood flow to the affected area. So this week, we are joined by a Life Lessons podcast listener who reached out to share her stroke story, raise awareness, and educate others on the signs and symptoms of strokes and how a stroke changed her life. So welcome, Candace. Thank you, Jen and Sherry, for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out to us with your story and your desire to really help others. It's taken some time. I told Jen I'm trying to be really brave about all of it, but it's important to me to share not only my personal story, but to help to inform and, and educate as we become more aware of stroke. I think that's really important. And I'm glad you're here being brave and we're just all talking. We're just all friends. You know really everything about me and Sherry. 
already. So, <laughs> I pretend like I do. Well, yes. you do because we're, <laughs> we're an open book. But before we get into your background and your story, what is the main lesson you hope to share with listeners today? The main lesson that I want to share today is that of advocating for ourselves in the area of health and wellness and advocating for those who are unable to advocate for themselves. I really thought that I was a great advocate for children as a teacher and an educator. I wasn't always a health advocate for myself. That's my life lesson I I hope to share. And, and again, sharing my story, I hope, provides inspiration, but also information and education in the area of stroke. I think you made an excellent point there about being an advocate for yourself, and it can be very intimidating, probably especially for people like us, Candace. I mean, Sherry's in healthcare. She's used to dealing with medical professionals and doctors and all of that. But for those of us that are not in the, the medical field, we go into the doctor's office, maybe intimidated. We feel like we can't speak up. Who are we to have an opinion? And exactly. so we need to be empowered. Yes, being empowered. We feel that we're overstepping a bit. We feel that it's not proper to ask questions. And I've really had to learn that it is okay to be an advocate in that regard. Absolutely. My biggest frustration with my patients that I deal with on every shift is they are not as involved in their health care as I would like them to be. They don't ask questions. You ask a patient, what brings you in today? And their answer often is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, something brought you here, right? So speak up. Don't be afraid. Don't think that your problem's not big enough. If a doctor says you don't need this test, ask why. Ask what the alternative test is. If a doctor says you do need this test, ask why. Ask why. (laughs) What is this test going to show? And people need to realize doctors are humans and they make mistakes. And part of a doctor's job is to educate their patients. Absolutely. We are in a rush, rush, rush world. And I don't ever want anybody to feel bad for saying, wait, 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 what are we doing? What is this going to show? How is this going to answer the question of what's wrong with me? And if you don't feel comfortable with what is happening, or you feel like you're not getting the right answer, or you're being shuffled along through the the process of right? yeah, arriving at an ER. Stop. You stop and say, wait, time out. I mean, like in healthcare, we have a time out. If anybody in the room, a professional is uncomfortable with something that's happening, we say time out. Everybody has to stop and everybody has to get on the same page. So patients need to use timeouts. Don't get rushed. Don't, right. as the doctor's heading out the door and you have a question, you're like, but say, wait, time out, stop and, and stand up for yourself. You have to do it. No, I think as women, though, we don't ask the questions. And I think that oftentimes we're looked at as being a hypochondriac, being someone who is over-emotional, whether our child is in a doctor's office or a hospital setting or a loved one. And I've had to learn to speak up in terms of my health and ask the questions. And I will tell you in regard to stroke, a person who's had a stroke has had a traumatic brain injury, and they may not be able to even think of what questions they have, especially in the acute stage of right when that stroke has happened or right when you are arriving in the hospital. And so 
my husband and my sister-in-law who were with me were there to help formulate and ask the questions that as an, I didn't even know that I had. And then of course, once you've left the hospital, there's so many questions that arise. So I just think asking the questions, don't be afraid to ask. And if you don't get the answers that you want, don't be afraid to look for other doctors or specialists because that happens a lot where we do not feel heard. Yeah, I think that's important. So tell us a little bit. Let's back up and tell us your story. What happened? How did you feel? Tell us all about it. Sure. To tap on to what Sherry said about stroke, just those facts, I thought that I knew a lot about stroke. My grandfather had had a stroke in his 80s. My mother-in-law had had a stroke in 2015. She also was in her 80s. But I believe through my journey, I have found that people primarily think of stroke as an issue with the elderly. Old people have strokes. Uh, If you look in pamphlets, they're all gray-haired elderly individuals for the most part. And I am the face of stroke. You know, I was 53 years old. I was an educator, had been teaching as a reading specialist, former kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher for 29 years at the time of my stroke. I am a busy wife and mother and felt that at the time of my stroke, I was I was very aware of my health. My daughter and I were running and practicing to run a half marathon, very active, very health conscious, very food conscious, and I had a stroke. They are shockingly common. They are shockingly common. There are over 800,000 strokes that occur each year. And like Sherry said, it is a leading cause of death, has been a leading cause of death. And it is the number one cause of serious long-term disability that we have. So I have a little fact too to share. Ladies, this is important. So while I shared that stroke is the fifth leading cause of death overall for women, Strokes are the third leading cause of death. Yes. And yep. one in five women will have a stroke. So women are at an increased risk of stroke due to hormones, pregnancy, menopause. Women of color are at an even greater risk of stroke. So it's really important to evaluate your current health and lifestyle. But if you feel like you're at risk for stroke at all, it's time to start like asking your healthcare providers, what can you do to reduce your risk? Right. And I was a person who had no known risks. I didn't have high cholesterol, no high blood pressure. I wasn't pre-diabetic or diabetic. I was at a reasonable weight. I will say my weight is much better now, but yeah. And I was, I thought that I was a healthy individual and I thought I knew a lot about stroke. So even though stroke is so common, every stroke is unique to the individual and different. Every stroke is different. Every stroke is unique. Stroke changes everything in an instant. You know, stroke is a cardiac event, much like a heart attack, but that occurs in the brain, like Sherry stated. And depending upon where your stroke occurs in the brain, which lobe, the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, the temporal lobe, or the occipital lobe, your deficits that occur from the stroke will appear depending upon where it happened in the brain. My stroke, my story of stroke begins on January 12th, 2020. My parents had had a weekend of water issue. My husband and I had gone over to talk to a contractor. And as we spoke to the contractor that morning, I thought that 
in my vision, in my right eye that I had a little bit of maybe a hair had fallen in my eye or the sun was in my eye. And there was just a little bit of a change or disruption in my vision. And when I looked at my husband, I knew that it wasn't the sun in my eye. Something was definitely wrong with the vision that I thought was just in my right eye. So I called him out of the room. And as I stood right in front of him face to face, one half of his face, as I looked at him, was white. I describe it as looking through an opaque shower curtain. It was gone. And it was exactly as if you drew a line down the center of his face and that vision had been disrupted. I had been diagnosed with an ocular migraine about a month earlier. Ocular migraines are very, very common. They can cause some disruption or a feeling of zigzag in your vision. And I had gone to the eye doctor. He said it could happen again. It may never happen again, but that was an ocular migraine, a migraine that happens, inflammation and a migraine that happens behind the eye. So it was a Sunday when I had my, I had no other symptoms of of stroke. Just to back up a little bit, that acronym of FAST, face, facial drooping, A for arms, asking a stroke patient to put their arms up in the air or arm weakness, a leg weakness, S for speech and language, and T for time, as Sherry spoke about. I had none of those classic signs or symptoms. I lost the vision in my eye, knowing now that B, B E has been added to the B fast. I would have known immediately. Yeah, because the B is balance and the E is eyes. B for balance and the E is for eyes. Any sudden loss of vision or disruption to your vision can be an indicator. So that was my primary symptom. I had this disruption to my vision. No headache at that point, no nausea. So we treated it as an ocular migraine. I did go and lie down and then the nausea began and then the headache began. Some light and sound sensitivity. But again, I was a 53-year-old healthy female and we treated it like a migraine. It had all the classic signs and symptoms of a migraine, but not of a stroke. After I went to lie down for a little bit, my husband took me home. The car ride was about seven minutes from my parents' house to my parents, and it was awful. I felt as if I were on a roller coaster. I had my eyes closed. Again, the nausea, the pain in my head, the headache. Got home, got into my bedroom, closed the drapes, ice pack for the front of my head, heating pad for the back of my head, and I slept most of the day. I slept for about six hours, tried to sleep. Of course, because my eyes were closed, I didn't realize that I was still having problems with my vision, but it was a classic migraine. I got up that evening and did have light and sound sensitivity still. My son made me a grilled cheese sandwich, uh, ate a little bit, and immediately went back to sleep. Knowing now what I know, I really feel like my body and my brain, that sleep was what I needed at the time. Did not go to the emergency room. Really felt that, no, we don't need to go to the emergency room. I'll be okay if I can just rest. My husband asked me over and over again. It's just a migraine. I do feel a little bit better, which I did feel a little bit better about six hours later. Went to bed that night and the next morning was Monday morning and I'm a teacher and I needed to be at school to do my most important job of greeting children as they arrived. I got up, I showered, I tried to get ready. My vision was still not right. And I kept saying, I just feel a little bit off. 
That was that B, that balance and dizziness that ensued from the headache. But I went to school, by golly, and I got children out of their cars and said good morning. And the more I... I get it. It's just what we do. It was Monday morning, and I had to be at school. Absolutely. I had to be at school. I got to be there. If I'm not at Buffy, what's going to (laughs) happen? Exactly. I needed to greet those children. And as I walked through school, I knew that something was still amiss and wrong. And so I went to the secretary and said, okay, I'm instead of going at 10 o'clock to the eye doctor, I'm leaving now. My husband drove me to the eye doctor and he tested first to see if I possibly had a detached retina because you can have significant vision issues with that. That wasn't the case. Everything ocular looked correct and normal. And then he gave me a test of my peripheral vision. And I don't know if you've taken one before or have any, it's basically you're covering one eye and there are all these little pinpoints of light. And as you see the lights, whenever you see it, you click basically a little joystick. And when that test was finished and they tested both eyes, he came back and said, this is not an an ocular event. Your vision is fine. This is a neurological event. Something has happened neurologically and I would like you to go to the emergency room immediately. So let me ask you a question. When you had this ocular migraine the month before, how long did it last? Minutes. I mean, less than five minutes. It was so quick. I went to the eye doctor immediately after. I had been very stressed and was using my eyes a lot. We were putting together some picture boards from my mother's funeral, and I had this ocular migraine. In hindsight, do you think that was a TIA? In hindsight, they say that it was not a TIA, a transient ischemic attack, ischemic activity or attack, which can be a precursor to a stroke. But no, they don't. They really, truly believe it was a migraine in my eye. Okay. Because I asked about the time because they say what TIA is. So anybody who doesn't know what a TIA is, it's kind of a, a mini stroke. Okay. Your brain is deprived of oxygen for a very short period of time. And then whatever is blocking the the blood flow to the brain, whether it be a small thrombus or plaque or whatever clears and brain oxygenation reoccurs. And they say that TIAs, they last usually less than five minutes. So the important thing about TIAs is don't like disregard them. If you have an episode where you're like, something wasn't just right right now, and any of those things may have been sign of stroke, do go ahead and proceed and get medical treatment because TIAs are a warning system that there is something going on that needs to be addressed. Approximately 15% of strokes happen after the person has experienced a TIA previously, one third of people who have a TIA go on to have a severe stroke within 12 months. But if they know this is happening, there can be intervention that can be done to help prevent you from having a full-blown stroke later. Right. And so my neurologist, they really believe that it was an ocular migraine. And post-stroke now, I have actually had another ocular migraine, but it was two years out. Again, a lot of stress on my eyes, a lot of stress in my life. And that is what triggered that first ocular ocular migraine. migraine, Right. My sister-in-law works at a hospital. Again, we're about 40 minutes outside of a major hospital, but we heard this neurological event and we immediately thought aneurysm or some sort of tumor pushing on my optic nerve. And that that is what caused it. Never, never, even at that time thought that I had had a stroke. 
So we got to the hospital, ER docs were fabulous, immediately had a CAT scan and the CAT scan warranted an MRI, which showed that I had had a significant stroke in the occipital lobe of the brain. And the occipital lobe of the brain is responsible for everything that we take in visually. 80% of what our brain takes in information-wise is visual information. And my occipital lobe had been damaged due to an ischemic stroke, which ended up being a cryptogenic stroke in nature, which is what we learned three days later. Crypto meaning that we don't know why my stroke occurred. So I was admitted and had learned that I had stroke, had no issues with anything physical, no issues with cognition, no issues with speech and language, no issues with occupational, fine motor skills, looked completely normal. If you had a discussion with me, it was very invisible. So then the testing begins, you know, besides the CT and the MRI, then they're trying to determine why I had the stroke. So 14 blood draws, looking for an undiagnosed autoimmune disorder, all of the heart tests that they could possibly do to see if I had undiagnosed clotting disorders. Maybe I had AFib, all of the heart tests to see if there was a hole in my heart or a blockage of some sort, testing your parotid arteries, everything, vascular, vascular tests that were done on my blood vessels. Everything came back normal within the normal range. So after the three days, I was released to go home and they were thrilled that there were no, you know, I did every physical therapy assessment, all of the assessments and passed all of them. Now, because I had a significant brain injury, I did still have headache. I had some dizziness because The blood supply to my brain had stopped with the clot. I did not have a clotting disorder. I did not have anything that they could pinpoint or trigger. But I had significant issues with my vision. Jen, you're aware of visual discrimination and visual perception. In teaching, we have all of these things that we're looking for in children and visual motor skills and being able to catch a ball and throw a ball and discriminating shapes and color. All of that had been damaged for me, all of it. I could not read. I had no peripheral vision. If I looked at a line of print, I could only see three words when there was a a whole sentence. But again, in the hospital setting, as the youngest patient on the neuro floor, I looked and sounded fabulous. And so I did go home with a heart monitor on and then I was tasked with advocating for vision therapy. The doctors hadn't heard of vision therapy, really. They weren't sending people for vision therapy. They certainly weren't writing prescriptions for vision therapy as they would have if I needed physical therapy or occupational therapy. So we really pushed for that. And the social worker who lets you leave the hospital, who goes through all the checks and checklists of are you okay to leave the hospital? When we said we are looking for vision therapy, she said, I don't even know where to look for that. Well, I had, as a reading teacher, as a reading specialist, I had referred parents all the time for vision therapy. And so I knew of two centers that were well-renowned. And and so we insisted on having a prescription for vision therapy. And I was thrilled to be leaving the hospital thrilled to be leaving the hospital. But what I wasn't aware of was 
going home and what that recovery period would look like post-stroke. So that was our next step in the journey was looking for a specialist who could help me and then trying my hardest to give myself some grace in this journey of recovery. I felt guilty for not being at school every day. I was letting people down. Right. Oh, yeah. All of those feelings of I was having to rely on my family and my friends. I lost that sense of independence. I couldn't drive. I couldn't cut up vegetables. I couldn't cook. I couldn't read. I couldn't research. I am a researcher and a learner by nature, as I think we all are. And I could not sit and read a book about stroke. I couldn't research on the computer and ask Google to tell me everything I needed to know about the occipital lobe and what to do for myself as a stroke patient. And that was frightening. I'm sure that took a toll on you emotionally as well. It takes a toll on no matter what your diagnosis is. Let's say you have a cancer diagnosis or you had a heart attack or a stroke or, or whatever. It takes a toll physically. It takes a toll emotionally, psychologically. It takes a toll. The amount of fear and anxiety that sets in upon your return home is undescribable. And when people have to return to work around you or return to school or their daily activities and you are you have this feeling of being left alone, yes, that toll is is a remarkable weight that is put on you. And it would be just as easy for me to hide and feel withdrawn and feel hopeless. And I really had to negotiate with myself, stop the negative self-talk that I had done this to myself, that I caused the stroke somehow, and really change and shift my mindset as I recovered because it's really difficult. I think that's really important because you were living a healthy lifestyle. You were in good shape. You were training for a half marathon. You know, you didn't have any of the risk factors. I was doing everything right. Everything right. So, but again, we, we're just trained to blame ourselves, right? <laughs> we are. We're trained to blame ourselves and that feeling of guilt and that feeling like I was failing everyone around me. It shows weakness. when you. To me, it showed weakness that I had to ask for help. And it has taken a long time. It's taken a long time to get past that. But that's really important. It is not, it is a sign of strength to ask for help when it's needed. But I didn't feel that way during those first days and months. And the fear, will I have another stroke? Will it be more debilitating next time? Will it cause death next time? Getting past that fear and determining what I had control over and what I didn't have control over and managing that. Those days at home or in rehab, if you leave the hospital and you have to go to, into a rehab center post-stroke, those first days and months and even years sometimes are difficult. So again, then I was faced with not only healing physically from my stroke, but then starting the what next, the steps of what next. So after I returned home, we started looking for a vision therapist. And of course, then you 
have to talk about insurance. And of course, it's not covered by insurance because it's if I would have needed physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language therapy, all of that would have been covered. And this is not covered. Vision therapy is not covered. Okay, now that's that's ridiculous. I started to ask you, I had a friend, her son needed vision therapy when he was in grade school. And I can't remember for what exactly, but it had to do with his reading and it was not covered and it was very expensive and he had to go once a week. And I think she was spending like six to $800 a month for this. Absolutely. When we started looking, and of course I felt I needed an evaluation first to see. So I went to two different doctors, two different vision therapists who were recommended and and who I had recommended parents for reading difficulties that parents take their children to. And I got two different evaluations and chose a a therapist who, again, had a lot of hope and said, oh my goodness, you're going to it's just going to be remarkable. The thing that was alarming to me was, Jen, you're familiar with evaluations and percentiles and age equivalencies. So of all of those areas, visual discrimination, visual memory, visual processing, all of those areas, my highest percentile was the 60th percentile. And my lowest percentile was the fifth, fifth percentile. The age equivalencies for some of my deficits were of that as a, of a five-year-old. And that's what my evaluation showed. I can't even imagine how hard that would be. And I'm still mad that insurance doesn't cover it. I mean, that is absolutely, I guess it's because no one could look at you and see it. Speech therapy, physical therapy, cognitive therapy. If my cognition would have been impaired, cardiac therapy, you know, my father had a triple bypass at one point in his life, and then he went to cardiac rehab. Every single thing except for vision. He went to cardiac rehab. Exactly. Right. But not for a stroke that occurs in the occipital lobe. And the thing that they kept saying when, because we would write, they would type for me, uh, my family would type for me, and I would speak on behalf of myself in getting a denial. And then uh, my part was trying to get them to understand that this was not an issue with my vision. This was not me going to an eye doctor. This was my brain. My brain couldn't process visual information. And they just, they never covered it. So it was an out-of-pocket expense, but we had to, because I feel like the recovery that I have made in all of the areas of vision is solely due to my hard work, of course, but the therapy that they were able to give me. I started therapy two weeks after my stroke, had the evaluation and started in the last week of January. I continued that therapy for six months. The only reason that I stopped was because my neurologist or ophthalmologist who had a background in neuro moved and was no longer in the St. Louis area. She moved to the East Coast. So I had to find all the modifications that I could and accommodations, magnifying glasses, switching to a black screen on my phone rather than the white screen, enlarging fonts, audio, the importance of audio for me, even though I am a visual learner by nature and not an auditory learner. It was so difficult to switch to auditory, but I felt that I had to do that. So I worked very, very hard and I would think, oh, I have accomplished this 
this task and I would go to therapy and they would present me with a new task and I would fail. I would fail miserably. I am a firm believer in neuroplasticity and the neuroplasticity of the brain. And I do believe that with time and patience and practice, your brain can learn to do new things and provide new networks. I believe that I do have that damaged part of my brain. When I look at my MRIs, it's there and you can see it on the MRI. But with neuroplasticity and some rewiring with practice and persistence, I can do things now that I was not able to do in January of 2020. Of course, it's been two years. I was, again, unable to read, unable to drive. And I do have so many issues still with reading, but with modifications, I'm able to read most things. I can't pick up a magazine. I can't pick up a book and read it for pleasure. Everything pretty much has to be online because I can control the font size on an iPad or on a tablet. But at the same time, looking at screens for a long time, I'm not able to do that because my brain just can't do that for long periods of time because of the fatigue, the amount of fatigue. So you have restored some vision to that eye from where you were at baseline post-stroke? Absolutely. My vision is completely restored. Okay, good, good, good. Yes, my vision is completely restored. It's just how the brain interprets visual information that I still have issues with. And again, we take all of that for granted. We take our vision for granted. So we walk about and do the things in our daily lives and and we take so much for granted, I think, of what we have. And until it's gone, you don't realize I couldn't cut a potato or a carrot because in my brain, it couldn't tell where my fingers were and where the knife was because it was shifted. My perception was shifted. I couldn't pick out two matching earrings out of an earring container, my jewelry container, because I couldn't discriminate and identify the ones that were the same. I couldn't discriminate shapes. I had to do things like large print crossword puzzles to help in my recovery, large print seek and finds. You're familiar with the maze books that we give our children, our our preschoolers and kindergartners, where you give them a highlighter and, and follow the maze from the dog to the doghouse. I couldn't do that at all post-stroke, immediately post-stroke for months. Is it because you couldn't process the information or you couldn't see it? It's not the vision. So that's the whole thing. It's the brain and how the brain is processing that visual information. It was taking what your eyes saw and processing it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so my mom, bless her heart, she would always say, well, can't they give you glasses? Can't they just give you glasses? (laughs) And again, and it's, it was not an ocular issue. It is my vision was 2020. I wear cheaters if I needed to readers. I was 53 years old, but it's how the brain is processing that visual stimuli and visual information. And that's where the mix up was because that's where the cells died when I had my stroke. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's totally different, but I didn't know this happened. My husband had a lazy eye at birth and it was never caught. It wasn't until he went to get his driver's license as a teenager and he looked in that little machine at the little vision test and, you know, they 
cover up one eye and say, read what you see. And he reads. And then they cover up the other eye and say, what do you you know see? And he said, it's not working. And the lady came around the counter and looked in it. And she said, look again. And he said, it's not working. Well, because that eye was not working correctly, his brain, the brain's crazy. The brain just said, we're not going to use that eye anymore. And just wow. turns that eye off. So now as an adult, if he covers up his good eye, he can see for a second out of his bad eye, and then it just tunnels out and it goes black because the brain says, this isn't it's working compensating. Right. We're going to just shut this off. It is. It's compensating. Yes. That happened with my stroke also and the vision difficulties that I had. It's called an convergence where your eyes actually work together. And I thought it was just my right side and my right eye, but it ended up being both. But I had the same thing happen. And so I had to train my eye every day in my therapy, five days a week to start working again, because my left eye wanted to compensate for it. And again, it wasn't the eye. It was how the brain is perceiving that visual information. It's so complicated. The brain is so complicated. We still, in my research now, we still don't know everything that we can about stroke, neurological disorders, brain injury and trauma, traumatic brain injury especially. It's amazing to me as far as we've come with modern medicine that we don't know everything that there is to know about stroke. And we, again, assume that it is an issue with the elderly. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm 53 years old. I'm the youngest person to have ever had a stroke. And that is not the case. There's so many people who have suffered from stroke. And, And sadly to me, they believe in these timelines, these healing timelines, three months post-stroke, you should be here. Six months post-stroke, you should be here. One year, if you haven't made it in a year, then sorry kind of thing. You're at the point of where you're going to be in your recovery. I do not believe that to be the case. And I hope that through this sharing this, people can find some hope in that. I've spoken with people who are 10 years post-stroke and they're still making strides in their recovery. I believe that I am still continuing to make strides and it will be three years in January. Things that I absolutely could not do in the acute stage right when I had my stroke. But even six months out, three months out, six months out, a year out, I'm much further along and I do not feel stalled. I do not feel that I've regained everything that I can regain. It may slow down a little bit, but there is still hope. Be persistent and advocate for yourself is basically, I think, your your big story here. Absolutely. And I really believe in being, being kind to yourself and giving yourself the grace that you need to know that you have gone through something or a loved one has gone through something that is a health crisis, taking the time, changing your mindset. It was a really big deal for me to say, I'm going to go ahead and take the rest of the year off as a teacher in January. You know, what will I do with the second semester? They were okay. And I needed to be okay with the fact that I needed to put myself first. We always say, say what you would say to to a friend to yourself. And I would have told you, I would have told any friend, take this time 
for yourself in your recovery. Put yourself first. You are important. But it was so difficult to tell myself that and to believe that that would also help in my recovery. Putting myself first for the very first time was important. And giving myself some grace, knowing that there were going to be setbacks and knowing that to feel the feelings and the emotion when I had them and then try to push forward from there. So as we close up, I really just want to go over some really important things with people. I want to leave this with you, okay? So be fast. Remember this acronym, be fast. And I also want to say, if you can't remember it, like listen to it today. And if you can't remember it, Google it. But again, in the moment when it's happening, Google is your friend. Later in this show, I have a great tip for everybody. Okay, good. Yes. So B, FAST. B stands for balance. Yes. So if somebody is suddenly having trouble, you or somebody else is suddenly having trouble, balance or coordination, that is a a warning sign. Eyes is the person experiencing a blurred or double vision or a sudden loss of vision in one or both eyes without pain. Face drooping. Does one side of the face droop or is it numb? Ask the person to smile. It's really obvious if a person is smiling and one side of their face looks like it's grimacing. That is not a normal smile. Arm weakness. Is one arm weak or numb? Ask the person to raise both arms. Does one arm drift downward? Speech difficulty. Is speech slurred? Are they unable to speak or are they hard to understand? Ask the person to repeat a simple sentence like, the sky is blue. Is the sentence repeated correctly? And then T is for time. It's time to call 911. If a person shows any of these symptoms, call 911, get them to the hospital immediately. But... Here's what you need to know. Not all hospitals can treat strokes. So it's really important to know where the closest certified stroke center is near you because you want to go to a hospital where they can treat you as quickly as possible. So that's the really important stuff I want to leave you with. I have some links in show notes. You can review it. And I mean, I just can't tell you guys how important this is. Do not wait. Do not think maybe it'll go away. Time really matters. Get to the ER. And it's so important that if you are the person who is having the stroke, you may not be aware that you your speech is slurred. Yeah, that you're acting differently. You may not be aware that you're acting differently. And that's when that other person, that caregiver, that family member, that friend, take action. Take action. Because the, a person who is having a stroke, you know, I had no idea that I was having a stroke when I had it. And mine was occurring in, in the visual part of the brain. So, you know, again, they may not understand that they are having a stroke. And even if you go to the ER and they determine that it's not a stroke, it's okay. Go ask the good questions. Don't hesitate to get yourself where you need to be. And don't think twice about putting someone out or, you know, I'm overreacting or it will go away. I will feel better. The kids can get off the bus by themselves. Yes. Somebody else can get them out of the car. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Candace, thank you so much for sharing your story today. And for everyone who's listening, you know, you can look in the show notes, but just be aware that it might not be the signs that you're thinking of. It might not be the droopy face. It might not be what we're expecting. Like with Candace, hers was different. It, it was her eyes, eyesight. And so be aware of all the ways that this could look. And Jen, I didn't speak about this right, but that 
idea that you always talk about with community. Find a community. Post-stroke, find a community. I wasn't able to navigate Facebook or Instagram, but there are so many communities and resources for not only stroke patients, but caregivers as well. Finding someone to talk to that has had a similar stroke as you, then you know, are these symptoms that I'm feeling now, are those normal? during my recovery? Should I be feeling this way? Why am I feeling this way? Find that community. There's so many good resources available to support those who have have had stroke or are living with a loved one who has had, had a stroke. And I can't thank you enough for allowing me to share this information with you. Well, thank you so much, Candace. This has been great information and great advice for anyone who may have this come up at any time. Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to invite you to the Life Lessons VIP community on Circle. Not only can you interact with us in a private online community, you can also connect with other listeners and community members. Sherry hosts monthly Zoom hangouts where we connect and talk. I don't go to all of them, but I pop in from time to time. You can join us in this new VIP community by going to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP, and you can choose your monthly membership contribution of $4.99 or $9.99. You can change to a different tier at the end of any, any month by simply managing your subscription within the platform. We want you to choose the option that feels like the right value to you. And if you get great value from the podcast each week, we would love to have you support us through the VIP community. It really helps. It supports us with the work we're doing on the podcasts and the costs associated with it. So now it's time for our listener-led lesson. And today's listener-led lesson comes from Lori. Lori says, When Sherry told me that there was an upcoming episode on strokes, I realized I had never shared a really cool app that everyone should download on their phone. It's called Free Emergency Stroke Awareness Foundation app, and it's available in both the App Store for Apple or Google Play for Android phones. Oh, is this what you were talking about, Sherry, when you said it was coming? Okay, Uh you were right, because I could just imagine everybody scrambling around to try to remember, like, what was that? What were those letters? But Free Emergency Stroke Awareness Foundation app has everything you need. Not only can it help you identify if you're having a stroke, you can put up to six emergency contacts in the app. And if you call 911 from the app, it will text your emergency contacts, notifying them that you're having a medical emergency, including your exact location. You can customize what your message to your emergency contact says. Within the app, it displays the signs of a stroke and encourages you to call 911 from the app if you're having any of the symptoms. It also shares the closest certified stroke center near you, which is important. My dad lives alone and is hard of hearing, so I can't very well explain the signs of stroke to him, but he can read them on the app. And if he ever has an emergency, I can rest easy knowing that I'll be alerted and can start the one-hour drive while emergency services are en route to him. So from this link, you can get to the app in either app store, and that's going to be in the show notes. It's www.strokeinfo.org mobile dash app. And again, we'll have the link in show notes. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener, and today's comes from Amy. The quote is, you are worn and cracked and dented, and that is okay, because I have never heard of a clean and shiny sword that won award. That is from Aaron Van Vuren. 
She said, I love this quote. As women, we are warriors. We care for, we protect, we shield, we love. There is this media push that women should be all of these things, yet also perfectly beautiful and unflawed in any way. We Photoshop away imperfections and blemishes, bruises and stretch marks. But how can that be? How can we be perfectly unblemished warriors? We can't. Nobody would expect that of a sword or even a soldier. Stop expecting it of yourself and stop expecting it from other women. Start loving your worn, cracked, and dented self. You have earned the right to. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to go to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP to be a VIP podcast supporter. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through any podcast app. We'd love for you to leave us reviews. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com and then listen each week to see if we share your story or tip. Until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.